Good morning. We have two Bible readings this morning. The first is taken from Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And the second reading is from John chapter 4, verses 19 to 26. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has come now when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. This is the word of God. Well, again, if you're joining us for the first time this morning, welcome. It's great to have you here. Well, last Sunday, we kind of kicked the year off, first Sunday in 2018, uh, looking at the greatest commandment and the great commission. Uh, And we kind of just distilled it down into the essence of three words or three phrases, love God, love people, and make disciples. Love God, love people, and make disciples. And uh, I talked about the fact that we as a church have a vision statement, an overarching vision statement. Our vision is to grow Christ-centered disciples And the reason that we have a vision is because vision gives us a picture, or as as Heibel says, a preferred picture of the future that produces passion. And so it's really important that as God's people, we have something that is driving us towards a preferred future. Now, all of this is found in his word. Uh, But we as a leadership have taken time just to mine through the scriptures and really articulate clearly what he has called us to. So our vision is to grow Christ-centered disciples, and then we have six vision scenarios or six pictures of what a Christ-centered disciple looks like in relation to worship, prayer, discipleship, local outreach, global mission, and justice. And I observed with you last week that the first three aspects of our vision, um, our vision scenarios, are, are, are Godward in their focus. They're about loving God. Uh, And that the final three have a people orientation. They're about loving people. And so I guess big picture, our vision scenario is is grounded in the great commandments and the great commission. And so starting today, we're just going to walk through sequentially each of these six areas and explore the picture, the scenario that, that has been given that is grounded in Scripture and look at the biblical content behind that statement And so that at the end of this six-week period, you'll have a very clear understanding of where we sense God has us headed as a church, what we're investing ourselves in. And some weeks more than others, but every week we want to try and touch on the practical areas 
of, of this church's life and ministries um, that are actually seeking to fulfill each one of these particular vision pictures. So our vision regarding worship is this. Um, our vision is to grow Christ-centered disciples who offer whole-of-life worship to God in spirit and truth. Now, as we've just heard from Anna, uh, this statement is taken directly from Romans 12.1 and John 4 in the conversation Jesus has with the Samaritan woman at the well. In, John, in Romans 12, Paul significantly reshapes what Christian worship looks like now that Jesus has come and in, in a sense acts as our sacrifice, but then encourages us uh, in response to that sacrifice to now live a, a sacrificial life for Christ. The passage in John 4, we're just focusing today on this conversation around worshipping in spirit and truth. Uh, over the years that I've been here, whether it's been myself or others, have, I guess, looked more extensively at John 4 and the woman at the well. And I'm going to assume, not that everyone, but the majority of us at least have some knowledge of this conversation that took place that Jesus had with a Samaritan woman at noon because she was an outcast. She was, um, she'd been rather promiscuous, although I think it's fair to say that given her set of circumstances as a woman that was heavily dominated by men, that her circumstances um, were not entirely her fault. And uh, sometimes we can be so harsh on this woman, referring to her as a prostitute and being quite, quite down on her. Um, but as often is the case with women in biblical times, they had a very hard lot. And so we, we probably need to be a little bit more gentle. Uh, so we're not focusing on the woman in this instance. We're focusing on this particular conversation that Jesus and her had around worship and around what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. And that's what our, our phrase or our statement, I guess, picks up, is this whole-of-life worship done in spirit and in truth. So I want to just, I guess, talk in a little bit detail about these particular Scripture passages and then open it up to talk a little bit more generally about worship. So we'll start with Romans 12 and 1. Because this explains how, through Jesus, worship has been radically reshaped. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, Romans 12 is a bit of a hinge. It's a turning point in Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, the first 11 chapters are all about what God has done to save and redeem and rescue sinful humankind. And then verse, chapters 12 to 15, I guess, is all about the practical response that we are to give in view of God's mercy. And in effect, what Paul is saying is God has done so much for you. You now go and live for him. And at this critical juncture, at this hinge in Paul's letter, um, he uses this phrase to go for, to shift from everything God has done to, I guess, what we do in response. And that phrase is this, in view of his mercy. And that phrase, in a sense, summarizes chapters 1 to 11, because chapters 1 to 11 of Romans are all about God's great mercy for, for us, for his people, for humanity. 
And so the first thing that we see here is that worship is to be offered, is to be given in view of God's mercy. God loved us first. And we love because he first loved us. So true worship is grounded and rooted in view of God's mercy. It's not about our response first. It's actually about what he has done. And then our response comes. So an understanding of God's great mercy, I guess, is what fuels and energizes our worship of him. Now, in both of these, I guess these are pretty, when I think about worship in the Bible, I firstly think about all the Psalms, uh, which we just spent some time in over December as we looked at the series Come to Worship. We looked at a number of different Psalms that speak of worshiping God and particularly speak about the posture that we are to have when we worship God. Uh, but I suppose Romans 12:1. And John 4 are kind of like giant passages in the Bible when it comes to worship. They're both in the New Testament. And if we're to fully understand them, we have to have an understanding of the Old Testament practices of worship. Because these phrases, these New Testament descriptions of what worship is to be, um, I guess, reshape Old Testament practice of worship. So in the Old Testament practice of worship... You had to go to the temple, okay? The temple was the place where God had specifically chosen to dwell. And the presence of God was there. It was kind of limited to this space. And so if someone wanted to meet with God, if they wanted to worship God, they would go to the temple. And at the temple, there was a priest. Now, the priest was a servant of God, yes, but a human still, and a sinful human at that. And so the priest had to go through several practices of confession and repentance and ensuring that their heart was right before they could then, on behalf of the people or the person, make the appropriate sacrifices and offer worship to God. You didn't just come to the temple empty-handed as well. To come to the temple, you would bring a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. And that sacrifice, in a sense, is currency, Um, So people would come with an animal. And the reason they would come with an animal is because the Scriptures talk about the fact that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And so blood had to be shed, and the blood that would be shed was that of an animal. So there's a cost involved in the Old Testament practice of worship. Firstly, there's a cost involved for the animal. It loses its life. But there's also a cost involved for the person who brings the animal because an animal is currency. Uh, And so a person brings the animal and they actually bring some of their currency, if you like, to offer in worship to God. Now, all of this practice of coming to a temple, an isolated place where God existed, of seeing a priest who would, on your behalf, intercede for God and offer sacrifices. And the very act of bringing animal after animal after animal were all foreshadows of what Jesus would do on the cross. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice and the shedding of his blood once and for all put away the need for any further shedding of blood because a perfect sacrifice had been made. And we know that when Jesus rose or when Jesus hung on the cross, uh, the, the, 
the curtain was torn in two, that that was the curtain in the temple, the place where the priest would go to make these sacrifices, to be in the very presence of God. And that curtain was torn in two. And forevermore, worship would look incredibly different. But it's important that we understand what worship looked like then to understand what worship looks like today. And so in view of God's mercy, we come. When a person in that particular situation would come to worship, they would come bringing an animal, as I mentioned, and that animal would be living. It would be sacrificed and then it would no longer be living. Well, we no longer need to bring animals, but what Paul says is that we are to bring a sacrifice of a different nature. We're actually to bring ourselves, and we're not going to die on the altar like the animal would. We're actually to bring our lives and to offer up to God the way we live our lives as an act of worship. So worship is no longer something you bring. Worship is now who you are. Worship is what you do. It's much easier, if you like, to bring an animal than it is to bring your life and to present your life in a way that actually brings glory and honour to God's name. So worship is to be a way of life for followers of Jesus. It extends to every area of our life. It extends well beyond what happens here on a Sunday. It is to touch every single aspect of our lives. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. It's this all-encompassing, whole-of-life approach to worship. And Jesus radically changes the way that worship operates in the New Testament. This, we, many of us know, this is what is required of New Testament believers, whole-of-life worship, to offer our lives as a living sacrifice. But do you know what? What's your experience? I'm not sure what your experience of this has been. My experience of this is that it's actually impossible. It's impossible for me to live my entire life as a life of worship. Do you know why? Because I'm a sinner. And I talked about that earlier. And deep in the recess of my heart, I have such a deep desire to live a life that pleases and honours God. But no matter how hard I try, I still fail. I still mess up. I still get it wrong. And so do you. And we can beat ourselves up against about this. And I'm reading a book about Martin Luther at the moment, and uh, maybe this is where this confession thing is coming from. I've just clicked. Because in the early days when he had just become a monk, he was so overcome, yes, with God's great mercy, but in response to that, how sinful and in... Uh, how, how, how sinful he was and how unworthy he was. And in a sense, I know what the story is going to go on to talk about, is the fact that the very system that kind of made him become a monk drove him away from a system that just couldn't work. You see, no matter how many times he confessed, no matter how hard he tried, he just felt more and more rotten as a sinner. And when we try to worship God, when we try to be good people, 
as an act of worship, it doesn't work. We fail. Because worship is not about us. And it's not about what we can bring. It's actually about Jesus. It's about what he brought. It's about his perfect worship. He was the sacrifice. And so the question for us is, are you going to try and substitute yourself for Christ and live a perfect life? Or at least try to. Or are you going to humble yourself to constantly live your life on your knees as a repentant sinner and put your hope and your trust and your faith in the one and only perfect sacrifice, Christ. So we have ourselves this dilemma of knowing that worship is all of life and that we're to bring a sacrifice of our lives, but no matter how hard we try, we just can't do it. We can't do it alone, and that's why Jesus gave us his spirit, his Holy Spirit that dwells within each one of us. And here is where the John 4 passage comes into its own. Yet a time is coming and has now come, verse 23, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Not exclusively, but largely, as I just talked about, Old Testament worship was largely concerned with the place, the where, and the sacrifice, the what. The Old Testament process for worship was concerned about the where, and that even comes into the conversation that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman about where worship takes place, because that's the context she's coming from. But New Testament worship is no longer about the place, it's no longer about the where, it's about the person, it's about the who, not the where. In the past, people had to go to Jerusalem for a genuine encounter with God because that is where God had chosen to reveal himself. But that all changes once Messiah comes. True worship is dependent not on a person, not on a place, but on a person, on Jesus, not on the temple. Now, when we want to go and meet with God, we don't need to go to a special place. And many of us would consider coming to church a special place. And in a moment, we're going to talk about the, the place of the gathering in a life of worship. But we don't need to go to a church building or any particular place to worship Jesus. Because wherever we go, there he is. Wherever we go, there he is. Now, worship is to be offered in spirit and in truth. Now, you'll notice, if you do have a Bible with you, that when we read in verse 23, true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit, the word Spirit is spelt with a capital S. Jesus is referring here to the Holy Spirit, not just the human spirit with a, a lowercase s. He's referring to the Holy Spirit you and I can only worship 
with the Holy Spirit. And this brings me back to my point again. No matter how hard we try to be good people and to worship God based on our efforts or merit, we can't. We can only worship God by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God's initiative, God's gift to us so that we can't boast because it's all about Him. We worship in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and we worship in truth. And many of you will know that Jesus would go on in John's Gospel in chapter 14 to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So worship is so Jesus-centered, it's not funny. Worship is enabled by Jesus because he is the truth. Worship is directed to Jesus because he is the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. And the thing about worship is that whilst it is given to Jesus and offered through the Spirit, it glorifies the Father. The whole Trinity is involved. As we worship the Son through the Spirit, we glorify God. The Father is glorified. Worship, so worshiping God in spirit and truth go hand in hand. They're not kind of mutually exclusive things. You don't kind of go and worship in spirit and then go and worship in truth. You can only worship in spirit if you know the truth. You have to know the truth of Jesus to be filled with his spirit to worship him. Uh, so sometimes we like to almost hold these two things, spirit and truth, in two separate hands. The two are so intimately connected we can't separate them. And so here Jesus is in this very moment. He is the author of life. All worship and praise is to be offered to him. He both enlightens us through the truth of his word, how to live lives of worship. He enables us to worship by the gift of his Holy Spirit. And in all of this, God the Father is glorified. Worship never begins with us. It never begins with us. We can only worship because we have God's Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Really captured by this line in John 4, where Jesus says, The Father seeks worshippers. The Father seeks the kind of worshippers who worship this particular way, in spirit and in truth. It got me thinking, firstly, wow. God actually seeks people. He seeks people who worship him authentically. He's like a father. And he is a father. God reveals himself as a father. Yesterday, Bronnie and I were having a conversation about how we might start to, over the coming years, talk to Brendan about decisions that he'll make in regards to his, his bigger decisions that he'll make, particularly in regards to studies and, uh, and career choices and these sorts of things. And I guess the, that conversation is grounded in our desire to see him flourish and to see him reach his potential. Any parent in this room will totally get that. You know, as parents, we want to see the best out of our kids. We want to see them reach their potential. And it's no different with God. As our Heavenly Father, 
He desires for his kids to reach their fullest worship potential. And if I ask myself, have I reached my fullest worship potential? I realize that I've got a way to go. But the way to go is not about doing more stuff for God. It's actually about what we've been singing this morning. It's about surrender. And the battle I think that many of us have in our lives and our journey as followers is how surrendered are we to the Lord? How surrendered are we to the Lord? What are we holding back from Him? What are we withholding? You know, for some of us, we surrender certain parts of our lives to God. But we reserve others because we don't want to hand those parts over. Surrendering all. Wow. (laughs) That's the call to be a New Testament worshipper is to recognize that worshiping God with my whole life in spirit and in truth is actually not something I can do alone. I can only do that by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit who dwells within me. And the more I surrender to Him and the more I, I guess, um, surrender myself to the truth of God's Word revealed in Jesus and seek to live obediently towards that, then I'm moving in the direction of living a life of worship. If we, as God's people, could simply humble ourselves and submit ourselves to the work and the leading of the Holy Spirit and allow the truth of Jesus and allow the truth of God's Word, who is Jesus, to pour into our hearts and to seek to live that, empowered by His Spirit, enlightened by the truth, empowered by His Spirit, will be well on the way to living the kinds of lives here at Erina that we envisage for people who are fully surrendered, Christ-centered disciples. So I just want to close in a minute, but I just want to actually bring it right back to what does this actually have to do with our Sunday gatherings? Um, Because that's a question that's been... I've been wrestling with and and thinking about and praying over. You see, our vision is not about church services. It's actually got nothing to do with what transpires here on a Sunday morning. Now, I don't want to minimize that. And in a moment, I'm going to hold it up and put it in its rightful place. But our vision is actually about our whole lives. And the reason that is, that's the Bible's vision for every believer, that their whole life would be offered to God as an act of worship. And that we do that through Jesus, by His Spirit and through His Word. So what is the role of Sunday service? Well, it may surprise you to know that the primary purpose for gathering on a Sunday together is not worship. And many of us would refer to this as a worship service. And many of us will leave a service saying, that was great worship today. And we have to think about, we have to carefully think, and I've said it and I'll probably continue to say it. Part of that is because we've just grown up in a culture 
and we've come to understand that the service is the worship. And, I've, and, and yes, is worshipping God something we do when we gather as God's people? Absolutely, absolutely. But it's actually the, the New Testament never exclusively says that that's the primary purpose for the gathering of God's people. Um, in the Old Testament, yes, people of God did have to come to the temple and they did have to bring their sacrifice. But remember, it all changes. So sometimes we, we bring an Old Testament theology to a New Testament place of gathering and we're kind of flipping with those two things. Now, we're not to bring an animal we're to bring ourselves, we're to bring our lives and to lay them down as an offering. The writer to the Hebrews makes a really helpful comment about the purpose of why God's people are to gather. And just some context, the writer of the Hebrews is writing to a group of Christians who were used to the Old Testament practices of worship have now been engaging in the New Testament practices of worship and are feeling really unsure whether this is actually, in fact, the right way. And they're at danger of going back to the Old Testament practices. And so the writer is saying, no, like, don't go back to that because we have the perfect sacrifice, Jesus. We have perfect access to God, Jesus. We have the perfect priest, Jesus. So all of the things that the Old Testament practice of worship required, Jesus fulfills all of them. So don't go back to the old ways. And he writes, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let's face it. Being a believer is not easy. It's hard. Following Jesus can be hard. And the writer of the Hebrews is saying, hang on, because the day is coming. And when he refers to the day, he is speaking of that glorious day when Christ returns and our salvation in him is made complete. One of the core reasons why God's people meet together is for encouragement, to encourage one another to keep going, to keep following Christ, to keep putting him centre, to keep offering our lives as a living sacrifice. You can't do that alone. There's so many things that we can do alone, but we can't encourage ourselves when we're feeling discouraged and so the primary purpose of God's people gathering is to spur one another on. It's exactly what I'm trying to do for you in this very moment. That's the purpose of a sermon. It's to use God's word to spur God's people on to love and good deeds, to keep going. This is not the game. <laughs> and, and oftentimes we will refer to the people that lead the music and singing, of which I'm gladly a part, as the worship team. But you know what? We're all the worship team. The church is the true worship team. And one of the ways I like to think of... It's gone. One of the ways I like to think of the Sunday service is like a service station. We often talk about this as a service. And then some of us um, come and we serve. 
And that's really important. I think all of us should come and we should serve. And, and that's one of the things that I wanted to talk about is there's a variety of things that happen on a Sunday morning that don't just happen. They happen because people have a heart to serve. And so for those of us who serve, whether it be on the music ministry, whether it be welcoming others in the door, serving morning tea, a sound and lyrics, collecting the offerings, stewarding the communion, there's a variety of ways in which we serve. And would love for people to serve if you're not already. Um, but we come ultimately so that God may serve us. And God serves us in a variety of ways. And I was actually reflecting on the way that we have arranged ourselves that speaks to us of how God serves us. So God serves us, um, obviously, first and foremost, through Jesus. And then the table speaks of our communion with God. So because of Jesus and we have direct access to God, we have communion with God, we have relationship with God. And the baptistry speaks of our identification with Jesus as we go under the water and we come up into the new life of Christ. The baptistry speaks of the washing and cleansing of sin and our identification with Christ and our identification with the broader body of Christ. These symbols are so important and they speak to us week and week and week of what God has done for us. And the purpose and the role of the music team is to lead God's people to lift our eyes and to, I guess, direct our hearts towards him and to worship him through song. It's one of many ways that we seek to worship him. And we as a team want to be able to do that as best we can. I know the hearts of all the people who serve in this ministry. And the desire is that we might help orientate and shift our focus away from ourselves and onto the Lord. To do that most effectively, we have to communicate with one another and we want to communicate with you. And so over the next little while, we might, we might rearrange things a little. We might look at different ways that we can do that, all in the spirit of wanting to most effectively communicate and lead um, us to worship God. But remember, when we come to serve, ultimately it is God who serves us. And we are then fueled to head out and live the real worship because the real worship isn't actually what happens here. You cannot judge a church's worship by what they do on a Sunday morning. You can only judge a church's worship by the lives that are lived during the week. And so, Lord, I pray... Please join me right now. I pray that our Sunday gatherings would be powerful times of service and communing with you and worshipping your name so that your people are fueled to go and live the lives of worship that you call us to live. And Jesus, we want to thank you for your perfect sacrifice. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the perfect spotless lamb that took our place. That Jesus, you are the perfect priest who intercedes on our behalf to the Father. That Jesus, you have poured your Holy Spirit into the hearts of those who've placed their faith in you, enabling each one to live a life of worship and of service. Father, I pray that these times that we gather would 
spur us on to love and to good deeds. May we truly encourage one another. We encourage one another through your word. We encourage one another through testimony, through words of encouragement, through prayer, through lifting your name and taking the focus off ourselves and pointing our hearts and our eyes towards heaven and giving you the praise and glory that you are so worthy of. I pray that our gatherings on Sunday might shape the way that we live our lives, lives lived in gratitude and humility for the cross, for the table, for our baptism. Holy Spirit, I pray for a revival amongst your people, not only in this church, but here on the central coast, Lord, that we could be true worshippers, that we could be the sort of people that you seek, people who are so overflowing with gratitude in view of your mercy, that we would live lives in worship of you, that we could understand that the way that we live is our offering. And God, I just pray right now for all the words that have been spoken this morning. I pray that anything this morning that has been said that is not of you would just be let gone out of people's minds and memories that only what you want us to know and to hear would remain. Oh, Father, I pray that there would be a softness, an openness to the work of your Spirit here in the hearts of your people. And I pray, Lord, that as we seek to live our lives as lives of worship to you from Monday to Saturday, that we could truly be called a church that worships God. And I pray that our worship to you and for you would be acceptable in your sight. We love you, Lord, and we don't want to just go through the motions of doing church. We want to be that worship team that you've called us to be, to be your hands and your feet, to be salt and to be light. We thank you for the fact that you have changed us, that you have rescued us from death and destruction and brought us into eternal life and come to bring us abundant life now. Help us to grasp that and to live that, not in our own strength, but in the empowerment of your Holy Spirit. We love you and we thank you for this time. We bless your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, John.